0: Jurassic Park Cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name is Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 45, The Park, recorded here on a snowy, during-region day, and we did indeed get quite a bit of snow as we wrap up the month of January on uh, the 29th, 2023. Thanks for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E, and you can check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp, and today's intro is from the song T-Shirts, and our outro is Death of a Dream. I have some corrections. In episode 44, Control, in my interview with Adam Buck, I said that I recalled buying the novel The Lost World in the U.S. before it was released in Canada on a trip to New York City. But Adam was right. The teacher strike that opened the window for my family to take me on a trip without missing any school over the Halloween weekend was in 1997, and so I couldn't have bought the book as described on that trip. I literally went to my parents' house. We were visiting my dad's uh, for his 70th miles milestone birthday, happy belated birthday, Dad, and I dug through the attic of the barn for some old photo albums and found that the New York City trip was conclusively Halloween 1997, so now my story is this. (laughs) I think we went to Washington, D.C. in 1995, and it would have been on that trip, probably that I got the book in the States before it was available in Canada. Now I was not able to find the photo albums from 1995, so I can't confirm these details, but only refine my hypothesis. But I was acutely aware that The Lost World was coming out before it was on bookshelves because I remember reading, like maybe it was Time Magazine. I think that had uh, an article about the upcoming sequel and the upcoming movie. And it had an entire excerpt of the novel in the magazine, a few paragraphs from like the Tyrannosaur parents attacking the trailer which we can all recall from the novel and the film. That's one of the very few parts of the novel that was adapted into the screenplay, but like I knew the book was coming out before it was available, that's true. And I distinctly recall getting it early and I was delightfully surprised to do so because it was something a common Canadian couldn't have as early as I had it. (laughs) Again, that's just how I remember it. Why let the truth get in the way of a good story, right? Uh, what else did I get wrong? It turns out there were only 30 Major League Baseball teams. I thought there were more than that. I would never have guessed the NFL and NHL both have more teams than Major League Baseball. Also, uh, let it be a matter of record, I'm a bad partner for Trivial Pursuit. I don't know anything. And finally, the Redactylus, a species of pterosaur that's coming up later in the novel, I have been misspelling and perhaps mispronouncing. It doesn't have two R's in it, and I've been pronouncing it like Sierra. As in like Sierra Leone, which has two R's in it. But the actual name is more Brazilian in its pronunciation and spelling. Now, what's the Portuguese pronunciation for the state upon which this animal animal is named? Well, I've heard it in Portuguese videos pronounced "Userra," Ciara, and Ciara, and Sayar-da. <laughs> so I don't know. But the Sierra dactylus seems incorrect. You gotta put some Portuguese pep in it. That's how you pronounce it. The Sierra dactylus Cir Ciro- I'm not sure. I am not Portuguese. Alright, dinosaur news. Our first story is of a new titanosaur with an unusual tail described in a paper from the journal Cretaceous Research in 2023. The specimen was collected from the Yixian formation, which dates to the Bremian age of the early Cretaceous of the Liaoning province of northeastern China. The new species is named Roxinia zhangai, and it is characterized by a unique combination of characters of the dorsal and caudal vertebrae and neural arches. The phylogenetic analysis machine calculated this sauropod as a titanosauriform, and its description quote, increases the diversity of early branching titanosauriforms in China, and highlights the tail morphological diversity in this clade. There are now more than 50 species of titanosauriforms identified, but the caudal vertebral series are especially poorly represented elements of these animals, making this a special discovery. The name honors Mr. Ruxin Zhang, who made significant contributions to the establishment of the infrastructure and specimen collection of the Erlian Heote Dinosaur Museum. The holotype ELDMELJ009, housed at the Erlian Heote Dinosaur Museum, was uncovered from the Yixian formation. It's comprised of 14 cervical, a series of dorsal, and some sacral vertebrae, 52 caudals, 36 chevrons, several dorsal ribs, a left ilium, left pubis, left femur, left tibia, left astragalus, and a metacarpal and a phalanx. Roxinia would have been about 40 feet long and had a stick-like tail. The fossils indicate it represents the largest sauropod yet found in the Jeho biota, with the length of the femur larger than those of Laoningotitan titan sinensis and Dongbei titan dongai. The next story is about another very new paper published in January 2nd, 2023 from the journal Nature called Decoupling the Skull and Skeleton in a Cretaceous Bird with Unique Appendicular Morphologies. The authors report on a, quote, early Cretaceous non-avialin dinosaurian akinetic skull with an avialin post-cranial skeleton revealing the key role of evolutionary mosaicism in early bird diversification. Named Cratonavis juai* which combines the Latin avis for bird with craton, referring to the North China Kraton, and the specific name honors Chinese geologist Zhu Rixiang, who has studied the destruction of the North China Kraton. I looked this up. The North China Kraton is a continental crustal block with one of the Earth's most complete and complex records of igneous, sedimentary, and metamorphic processes, so it's geologically significant. Cratonavis has been phylogenetically classified as a jinguofortacid which I had to look up, uh, these are bird-like animals that represent the transition from an animal like Archaeopteryx, which had a long tail, and more bird-like animals which have a pagostyle, uh, which is like a short tail ending in a compound bone. So think of, of an animal with a tail and the other with a rump from which long tail feathers spring out of. Uh, one's got vertebrae in its tail and the other it just has plumage there. Uh, what stands apart with this discovery is, as far as I can understand it, the postcranial body is very bird like, but the skull is very non avian dinosaur like. There have been articles that have said this has a Tyrannosaurus head, which is a bit cringy, but it would have had a head much more like an Archaeopteryx, but a body much more like a bird whereas Archaeopteryx has the long tail, long legs, and long clawed fingers. The holotype IVPPV31106, housed at the Institute for Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology, was uncovered from the Jiufotang Formation. It's comprised of a complete articulated individual with preserved feathers. All right, and with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. All right, my terrific guest today, I'd like to introduce everyone again to the author, the podcaster, and presently a Texan? Correct. Texan. All right. Uh please welcome back to the show, my terrific guest from episode fourteen Airport, Robbie Dorman. How are you doing today? I'm I'm good. Thanks, Ryan, for having me back. <laughs> well, thank I, you for coming back. I like this. Yeah. Uh
1: I'm currently a Texan. I might be a Floridian soon ish, depending on the whims of interest rates uh in the US. But <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: well, Texan cool. for now. I, I keep hearing about Florida in the show. Are you have you have you lived in Florida before? Yeah, I'm from Florida originally. You're from Florida, okay.
1: We've moved a lot <laughs> since my wife and I have been together. We've moved to South Florida, to Edmonton, to Austin, and now back to Orlando. So it's a lot of, a lot of moving.
0: So that's exciting because uh, obviously I'm calling you from Canada, although I'm not in Alberta. But uh, no. did uh, when you when you're up in Al- Edmonton, uh, did you get? Um, get into the hockey and stuff like that up there
1: oh yeah yeah i'm an oilers fan now right i in where i grew up there is no hockey culture Mm -hmm. zero uh so it's like it's a distant probably (laughs) fifth sport in where i am which you know football rules football is number one with a bullet i grew up a football fan but you moved to edmonton i'm like well i'm like you know do as the romans do like this is a way to kind of get into be a Canadian, be a Albertan, be an Edmontonian. Uh, I was like, I'll, I followed, so I, follow. so I started following the Oilers, and that is right in the midst of that big playoff run they had. With, and obviously Connor McDavid, Leon Dryside, all those guys are mm-hmm. incredible to watch. And now I'm just an Oilers fan. And <laughs> they went to the Western Conference Finals last year, got destroyed by Colorado, but that's okay.
0: Yeah, they were in good company. Was, I think most people did. <laughs> yeah,
1: I mean, I it's a long playoff run. It's fun, but yeah, I'm a hockey fan. Though it's my main my primary. Uh, sports fandom.
0: How long were you in Edmonton? Uh 2
1: years. We were in 2 years. We were right up against where we would have had to do more visa paperwork stuff mm-hmm. to stay longer and then we were like anything against Canada is just so far away from our family yeah, like
0: yeah.
1: from Florida, from Florida like whenever we'd want to visit. It's just so much <laughs> travel and it's very inconvenient because Edmonton it's not Toronto. Like you can if you're in the Toronto area, you can fly almost anywhere within a direct flight, probably, um but Edmonton is always connecting flights, and after like harrowing journey and it's just so cold, <laughs> like I've never been so cold in my life, and now when we get winters in Texas, like yeah, it's it gets cold for blow freezing sometimes, but it's not negative 40. Like, it's just impossible to describe to people like, oh, yeah, I talked to people in Texas who've never left Texas or never left the South. And they're like, hey, mm. I'm cold. I'm like, is,
0: yeah, it's not, 35 degrees is, colder than my freezer outside right now. <laughs> yeah, it's
1: not. Yeah, exactly. It's not. It's cold. But you're like, if you walk outside, we, could you die? Because <laughs> that's because that's the situation. <laughs> you're like, in Edmonton, like they're Edmonton, they you get tips. You're like, don't, if you go out in winter and like you, like literally people, my co cowork- my wife's coworkers would say, oh, if you pinch your nose shut and it doesn't open up, go back inside. Yeah. And you're like, oh, because you could die. Or like when we leave the airport, we leave our, we'd leave our car. We'd have to go, you know, it'd be late at night. And it's negative 25. And the bus driver takes us to our car. He's like, I'm not going to leave until your car starts because if I leave you out here, you could die. And we're like, <laughs> thank I mean, you. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate oh that <laughs> you're very kind but yeah that, i mean it's it, it's the proximity to our families and that's i mean ultimately like hey we're going back to
0: florida so mm. you must have a book of um all your unique uh horror story ideas i, I then you have to you'll have to jot down it's so cold you will die and just somehow have the cold chase people
1: <laughs> i mean that's underneath the this in Antarctica but a lot of that there's a lot of cold in that I mean I love the thing that's it's directly inspired by the thing Mm -hmm. but the cold is a big part and it's direct experience there is no I don't need to like I didn't need to read about how how cold affects people like I lived it (laughs) and it's and then like it's a way of life for a lot like you live up there it's not like yeah it's cold but it's just like uh, yeah it's cold Mm -hmm. but for me I'm from Florida it's tropical weather basically and go to Edmonton it's it's a awakening. Mm-hmm. it's
0: not part of your routine to be prepared for it
1: yeah exactly it's like every day you're just like mm-hmm. oh yeah you you have to worry about make sure your furnace is working and start have fires and stuff like that luckily we're we were pretty we luckily had an apartment that was prepared for, <laughs> right for the winter. Yeah.
0: So was, uh, I know Killer Hockey Mascot came out last year, which was one of uh, your, your newer novels. And uh, is that influenced by your time at Edmonton, discovering the Oilers and enjoying that? Or was that kind of always uh, something that you're, you're um, going to get
1: to? Like, I mean, it's I, like the main the villain is gutsy. Yeah. It's just, it's very much like, what if we took Gritty? You know, Gritty is fun. I love the, the, the flyers are terrible, but uh, Gritty is fun. And he was a meme. He was he's kind of fallen off a little bit now, but it was a huge meme impact then, right like that that same period I was starting to get into hockey. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I don't know, I think I was joking with a friend one day about you know, it would be fun to have Gritty, but dial it up even more and make him a killer. And he was like, You should write a book about that. I'm like, I should. It was and it was like, Yeah, there's it's about there's hot it's connected to hockey but it's really not it's not a hockey book there's some like fun supporting characters that are hockey players but it's mostly about i don't know it is of like i was i think about this a lot where like i have some books that are like huge gut punches and filled with things that like rip you apart and traumatize you and then other ones are like more like throwbacks to like those fun slashers from the 80s or 90s where it's not i don't it's not necessarily like you pull your heartstrings a little bit but mostly it's just like this is fun like it's a big like a magic gritty but he's a killer and like it's just silly and stupid but you just play it straight and that's i just i went you know what it and just title it killer hockey mascot like it's just that (laughs) why am i gonna dress this up Mm -hmm. like it it is what it is like i when people i want to talk to people about it at shows like when i bend uh, at horror shows or something, I'm always like, "It is exactly what it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is exactly what it says it is. It's if the book is called Killer Hockey Mascot,
0: yeah. Snakes on a Plane, yeah, precisely. It is it. literally
1: that. It's yeah. like, and Snakes on a Plane is like, it tells you what it is. You know what it is going in. That's Have you seen the trailer
0: mascot. for Cocaine Bear yet?
1: Yes, I'm, <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. I <laughs> you know I'm, exactly I'm, what I'm you're getting. <laughs> I'm gonna, yes, exactly. Like that movie is like, here it is. This yeah. is what it is. What it says on the tin." There's, it's going to be full of insane, dumb, like I don't know, like gore and violence and a cocaine cocaine bear. Like it's like that's just the title. Like what else do I need? Like do I'm expecting like deep, uh, emotional connections to any of these characters? Nope. Nope. But that's fine. I don't want that. This that's not what I'm looking watching this for.
0: Yeah, there won't be some like subplot about locusts suddenly. uh... Oh no. Well, that's cool was there was there anything else that came out of your time living in the living up north in in canada that uh might make its up. way make it make your way into your in your stories into your novels oh
1: i mean it i think it is like that also when you describe the twilights of the stranger in strange land kind of feeling mm-hmm. that is in all of my that's in a lot of my books is like that idea of someone walking into a strange situation not feeling like long um i could probably point to half my books where the protagonist has entered into a new town. They're a new, new person, a stranger in a strange land. And that it, it you know, it kind of affects their worldview and they feel like they're being watched. It
0: feels like they're, they don't belong here. Mm. Um, and that feeling never goes away. It's always there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, last time uh, we spoke, you had burial coming out or it was new at the time and, yeah. uh, and, and you recommended regrowth as a very Michael Crichton-esque styled story and I'm happy to say I got to check them both out and they were both cool. I don't know if this is like common through all of the novels you work on but uh, these two they uh, they both are kind of set in these dystopian futures and for me I really uh, identified in Burial that it felt very much like um, I was a big fan of Fallout, specifically like Fallout 2 and then uh, the New Vegas one was really cool and it just kind of as it was like that western feel going through the wastelands and things like that I thought it really had that feel to it and so I connected in a, in a really fun way. like. I think it was interesting too that like, um, you don't get into too many details regarding like how how this new reality has presented itself. We just you're living in it now, and and uh, and there isn't like a huge backstory. Although I'm sure you write something in your head to make it work, but it was the world building was good, but it was sparse, and it was so there's a lot of imagination. So I was able to fill it in with like my interpretation of what the wastelands would be like. But it was super cool and fun adventures. Uh, yeah, it was just like playing Fallout. It was a lot of fun. I thought.
1: I mean Fallout is a, I love Fallout. Yeah. Uh I love all the Fallout games. There's definitely an influence there. Um mechanical for Leibowitz, uh the, you know, classic science fiction. There's a little bit of that, you know, where it's it's people starting to, there's and it's also like the I was thinking of another direct influence on that is uh like the old like some of the Peck and Paul westerns from like the ones especially like uh Wild Bunch in particular, where Wild Bunch is it's a Western, but, and it, but it's right at the end of the old West, you know, like you, there's a car in the wild bunch. People see a a car and it's, you get the sense that this old, this old way, this wildness is kind of going away a little bit. You know, the, the, the wildness is being taken and that's not bad, but it is the, it is an end of a way of life. It is a change. And it's interesting to see how people respond to that. the the I don't necessarily like I, I I don't necessarily want to put in a bunch of lore about mm-hmm. th- how did the world end who like who's responsible all that stuff um, I think it changes the book fundamentally um, it, it may one it would make it more of a I think a proper I'm not Neil Stevenson I'm not going to write a thousand page science fiction novel that has all that stuff in it and I love Neil Stevenson I think he's great but that's not me. And I think, yeah, you can fill that you can fill in the gaps. You and like there's so much post-apocalyptic fiction now. You know, there's always these like little pockets of like how what happened. And I think I just give like enough hints to like, oh yeah, there's bombs, a lot of things got destroyed. Obviously, there's a radiation plays a big mm-hmm. factor in the story. But other than that, like Emma doesn't think about that stuff. So you don't either. Mm-hmm. You know, if if the character was an archivist or a librarian that worked in this the city. Who is like trying to piece this stuff together? Then that I would write more of it, mm. but I think Anna doesn't care. Anna's Anna is I, Anna, Emma. Now I get all my characters mixed up. Sure, yeah. Emma, and I just read reread Barrow, and I've already forgotten. Emma doesn't care about that stuff. You, and also, like uh, I think of a lot of times, I think of um, if you've ever played any of the Dark Souls games or or uh, Elden Ring, those the From Software kind of games. There's no story in it really you're just kind of wandering this world and you get in you infer things just for picking up pieces of things and Mm -hmm. stuff like that and i think like that's where i was my mind was in that place too where it's just like follow emma around and she'll tell you what you need to know
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well i like it in that it's um story building requires cohesion or else you wind up with just like different narratives and they don't they don't connect together the um they can be distracting or just a waste of time or or something like that. And so you're right, unless you had an archivist or there was something in the past or they had some stake in the in the in the creation of this dystopia, if there was something related. You put it in. If it's not related, <laughs> uh, you can you can have a very streamlined and, and and potent story without diluting it with details like that. And, I, and it works successfully. Like it, you wonder, and I think wonder is good too. But you don't uh, you don't you don't miss out by any means. It's, it was, yeah, I thought it was really well done. I appreciate that. Thank you. And then, that seems like in a more distant future than regrowth, where it still sounds like the cities are falling, sort of. Uh, yeah, regrowth is absolutely a pandemic story. Like, yeah. it was,
1: like, I was, it was very much like, oh, we're, and it was just like, push it a little like there's you know i think i mentioned the very beginning like oh people are fighting over toilet paper mm-hmm. it's like it, i remember very distinctly early days of the pandemic when there was grocery shortages and stuff like that and it was very much like that tense kind of space where people are uneasy they don't know what's going to happen i just bolted that on to the idea i already had of the, like the scientists and trying to regrow limbs and things like mm-hmm. that but that yeah there's a that is near future, and like to be fair, the, those two books are probably the only ones that are so far out of modern day. Oh, is where there? like I think I think I think most of my books otherwise. I I people ask me, are they connected? Are my books all connected. I write so many of them, and I like to think most of them take place take place alongside each other. Mm-hmm. Like they're not in like even in. I do put Easter eggs in. Like Death Rattle in particular, it has a few Easter eggs that mention things happening in my other books. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. those are the two where like. They don't, they can't take place in the, the world as those, the normal world, so to speak. So they don't. But, um, <laughs> but a it's similar not, adjacent world,
0: yes. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's more about I created the world that would best basically like create a pressure cooker, especially in regrowth, it's a pressure cooker situation mm-hmm. where you're like, you know, put it in this in this lab and start to increase the pressure, dial it up over time, over time. And what would create more pressure than the world ending
0: mm-hmm. and then i think you described regrowth as living in a dystopian future having a bond villain for your nemesis or, or as your employer and, and you, you know everybody's underground and then um, a scientist is pressured to develop an advancement that helps people regrow their limbs but they uh his faith in <laughs> in doing the work for good is shattered pretty early uh but he's compelled he he's forced cajoled to to move forward yeah. with it without ruining anything. And it was really you mentioned like this one's the most, I guess, Crichton-esque, and it was. I liked how we they become isolated, they get into this scientific world, and those are two things that I think Crichton does really well. Jurassic Park in particular, it has to be on this little island, it has to be in this little spot. If it were anywhere else, uh it doesn't it's proven to be a little sloppy <laughs> when they when they take dinosaurs off the island. But yeah, and the science was really neat. How much work went into coming up with um whatever the barriers are to like regrowing a limb or, or like the whole idea of feeding calories into it was really fascinating. Like, is there research you looked into to that or did you just have uh, to yeah, imagine? I, mean, it I,
1: I did, I, I think there are levels to this and I think Crichton generally did more look closer into things like there. I think his science is more sound than mine, uh, obviously mine, but, uh, Because cloning is generally was and is still, you know, like you can, we can clone animals. It's generally it's under a lot of scientific rigor, but you can do it. uh, And they have done it. I looked up, you know, I looked up people and there are people who there are scientists who are researching. Obviously healing healing techniques to to get more advanced healing, uh, better and faster. There are people who researched. Can we regrow limbs? Is it possible in mammals and humans, et cetera? And like the the obstacles that they face in the book are real obstacles. They're real things that people face. And the and gene editing and and Cas9 and in like and I was I finished my read of Jurassic Park before recording. And there's mentions of all that stuff. in it and like it's interesting to see because I did look at what's the current research, you know, and what it's at and what are the the pitfalls and i just i just kind of like well this is in near future this is advanced tech i can fast forward through some of these things they figure out the problems and I, I i i mean matt my co-host in the simpsons show is one of my beta readers he he looks at the books before anyone else does one of them and he is he's pretty dialed in on modern science stuff and he was my like i lean on different beta readers on for different books depending on their tastes and matt i definitely lean i'm like does this pass? he reads a lot of science fiction hard science fiction too so i'm like does this pass muster does does this pass this sm- it, it just needs to pass the smell test really i don't need like if you're an actual scientist and you're working on gene editing and all this stuff you're probably gonna read my book and laugh at me that's fine yeah. uh, <laughs> i don't yeah i i get it but it's mostly, I, I get, like, 80% of the way there with real science, mm. and then I let the rest of the 20% take over where it's science fiction, where I'm like, they, and, like, those, the monk, like, I mentioned, like, oh, yeah, they use monkfish, you know, uh, stuff. They they blend in all these different g- gene techniques and, and inject it this way and that way using CRISPR and all that stuff. That, I, that if it ever does work, that I think that is how they would end up doing it you know and that's the that's the only kind of rigor i held myself to mm-hmm. but it did this is definitely a Crichton it's definitely a Crichton but also there is a lot there's some really goopy body horror stuff at yeah. the end <laughs> that i uh i also wanted to write specifically like i was like i want to uh i don't know if you've ever seen the anime akira I've uh, heard amazed. of
0: it, and I think I've seen it on it's, your bookshelf or something like that in the photo. Yeah,
1: it, I, yeah, I have. I have the, the the manga is. I'm pointing at it right there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the manga is also great, but it's very, very long, so it's much, much it's much more digestible. The anime is also great and beautiful. Uh, it is like often held as like one of the defining films that kind of brought anime to the West, mm. to more mainstream acceptance in the West, because it's so beautiful. The animation is incredible. This it's a science fiction story um as well but it's also like there's some kind of gross body star stuff in it so akira is definitely a big influence on regrowth it's it is i just i always pitch it as it's creighton meets cronenberg because david cronenberg Mm. is so well known for his body horror but it's actually more michael creighton meets akira um akira toriyama uh, uh but and but it's it, that is not as most people. When I ask, "Have you seen a cure?" There, you know, maybe you know one in ten will have, or two in ten people have seen it, but most haven't. So I just, mm-hmm. you know, Cronenberg is good shorthand for kind of gross body horror stuff. But I don't know. I think that's it's also like uh, I think The Fly or The Fly Two. Those The Fly Two is not a very good movie, but it does have a similar setting. So mm-hmm. I think it, the, those those kind of body horror movies where it's like a man is changing into something and he doesn't know what to do about it. So there's there's elements of there.
0: One of the things that you do that Crichton doesn't necessarily do in Jurassic Park anyhow, but in some is uh, so Jurassic Park has a, a fairly large cast of characters, and you don't really spend a specific amount of time with any one of them, and they don't really go through like a growth or a journey. Really, I mean, they they survive adventures, but they don't you don't really see them coming of age or, or something like that. Uh, but obviously, uh, in in the two that I uh, had gone through, uh, really really character centric and. Their motivations are always clear, and uh, and as they learn and change, you feel that with them, and they have uh, responsibilities to others and stuff like that, which Jurassic Park doesn't do. <laughs> and maybe, I don't know if Crichton did well, or often, um, but that, that I don't think was what Crichton was focusing on. But it's good to see that that is what you do do, and then uh, as they go through these journeys, you do have, like, the heartstrings. They aren't just, you know, these, these uh, splatterfests or, or crazy things and uh, interesting journeys that they go on, which was good. Um, and a big part of The Simpson show is when you when you fix a broken episode. And, uh, you know, that's got to be the hard part. That, uh, you know, how could you change this <laughs> collection of nonsense and turn it into a narrative that means something at the end? Because, uh, you know, the first few seasons of The Simpsons did that. And, you know, even Full House did it. There was like a little sit down with Danny Tanner at the end of the episode and have a little heart-to-heart. And it was contrived and it was dumb, but it, it was there because it meant something. <laughs> and then without yeah. that, though, like this... This sh- what does the show even mean if you don't have that? Uh, if it doesn't mean something,
1: what is it? <laughs> I mean, it. it I think Crichton doesn't. He's in like rereading Jurassic Park, and I also we drove from Texas to Florida for the holidays, mm-hmm. and I and I, I don't know if I'm making it a tradition, but I re I have the I have Sphere on audiobook, so okay. I lis- re listened to to Sphere, and then I reread. Jurassic, I finished my read of Jurassic Park, and it's. I think Sphere has a little bit more of it, but I think honestly. Crichton through most of his books were he's really capturing like the pulp stories uh, pulp science fiction mm-hmm. from 30s 40s 50s uh and and kind of melding that with a somewhat harder sci-fi with the the actual data about how do, how you, how are we cloning dinosaurs how you know how does DNA work and all that stuff and those pulp stories they're their adventures, you know, they're like in Sphere in particular calls into uh, you know, twenty thousand leagues under the sea, Jules Verne, mm-hmm. and I think Crichton is a Jules Verne type in a lot of ways. And I love Jules Verne when I was when I was a kid, and I love Michael Crichton, and I think it's for those same reasons. It's like it is a f- exciting adventure that is also it makes it feel more real because he leans so hard into harder sci-fi. You know, he's also not a Neil Stevenson, but that is also. Not a bad thing because you'll see. when some books are very long, and can sometimes be hard to get through because <laughs> uh, you have to read them over weeks. Well, in Jurassic Park, I re- I re- finished this in a, in a day. Like it just I breeze through it because one I've read it many times, so it's not like I'm not processing a lot of the information. But the Simpsons <laughs> <laughs> uh, in season twenty. Um, in season, you know, especially the late teens, which is, is absolutely brutal. There, It is just it's, it's just it's things. You know, things happening, and there are ep- absolutely episodes where Matt and I are like, I don't feel like it. This is, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. too hard. Like, it's not, like, it's not, it, you feel being, mis- you feel like, I feel like almost like being, being, being mistreated, like, by the writers of the show. Like, of the show that I've loved, and now I've put a lot of hours into mm-hmm. it, because I've <laughs> Literally, I think I've joked about this with Matt before, but I think it's true. Me and Matt are probably the people, aside from people who have worked on the show, <laughs> yeah. have actually spent the most time on The Simpsons um, working with The Simpsons properties. And maybe if you're like working a ride at Universal, you know, if you have, like take a ticket taker t- t- at the Simps- one of The Simpsons rides. But it's the fix this episode stuff is... I think it is one of the things that I can... It is a unique thing that I can bring. Like anyone can record a podcast talking about the Simpsons and there are many people who do, but it, I think it is something that because I write for a living that I can add that little, that little, and I think it is a thing that I try and put in a lot of most of my stories. Some of my stories like killer hockey mascot, there's, (laughs) there's somewhat character stuff in it, but it's not a character journey. Like burial is burial is a, you're following Emma along the whole way. And her, it's her journey but most of my books I connect to a character and because you care about the character, you care about what's happening to them. You care about what's in the story. And that's always was the Simpsons to me is I care about this family. I, you know, I, it, I think it helps that I connect in that, like Homer is my dad and Marge is my mom. Mar I, and I'm not Bart, I'm more of a Lisa, but it is that idea. Like you can kind of, I insert my family into those roles. It became mm. a part of my life, but Rue, there's a reason I'm 37 years old. I can go back and watch those nineties episodes, the golden years and you watch Lisa on Ice, where Bart sells his soul, and those are they work as art. Mm-hmm. They are they're great character arcs with incredible comedy and and it's not that I don't believe The Simpsons writers at any any time are bad writers it's just feel like i don't i can't understand putting that stuff out the door um and like because you would read it and you would know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. like i'm not i don't consider myself a writing genius i consider myself a competent writer and you could easily look at a script and go no we're missing things like it's i can see when i read my rough drafts i go no this is you need to do this robbie You need to have this and this and this. You need to do these three things where the story doesn't quite work. Mm. It's not quite as good. And when I look at those, when I watch these episodes, which are, it's crazy to me. That is, it's just (laughs) mind boggling that this got passed first. Like people wrote the script and then it went to take, like it went through table reads and animation. And that's millions of dollars spent on every episode. And no one said, you know what guys, we should rework this. We should recut this. And it feels like it, they have, like, just a mandate at some point, like, mm. pump them out. Mm-hmm.
0: It's like, like the whole you, framework of how they do it was mm, perhaps erected incorrectly. Because <laughs> it's I overlooking mean, I, that in the entire process, yes.
1: I mean, it's like people always ask. The, like, there's a lot of questions like, well, why
0: did the Simpsons get bad?
1: Why did Zombie Simpsons happen and all that stuff? Um, and it's not one reason. It's it's a common it's a lot of big combination of things i think in a perfect world they probably i think they would like i think that all those people probably do have pride in generally in their work and mm-hmm. want to make a good show but there's probably a billion there's a lot of factors that contribute to it and i think i when you do i don't know i'm in a very sp- specific situation most like I've talked about this too. Most people who watch The Simpsons in those ba- in the bat the very bad years, they will watch a bad episode. Most of them, you know, there's a those are the really bad ones. Everyone would hate. But if you watch one of the mediocre bad ones, which there are so many, most most of the bad episodes are just kind of mediocre. Like they they're they're missing things. They don't make sense. They're mostly unfunny. Most people will go, oh, that's fine. And but if you don't watch it every week, like Matt and I have and the people who follow along with us, you don't put it all together. Probably you're, you know, you watch an episode here or there, you watch what something is on a rerun or something that you've DVR. And you're just like, I'll put that one on whatever. And, you, and it's on for 20 minutes. Maybe you're doing laundry while, while it's on, maybe you're, you're exercising or doing chores or you just sit on the couch and you're on your phone while a show's on. You don't know, you don't think mm-hmm. about things like I do or Matt does because we are talking about it every single week. And you just notice the same things over and over and over again where the, like the, you know the couple episodes the last few episodes they not have endings where they don't have proper endings where there's no like uh, the episode that just came out um it has all the makings of what could be a good episode of the simpsons but they just don't do the, the big dramatic story beats at the end and you're and it's kind of like why don't you they would have to rewrite other things that are probably like well we also have 20 other episodes we need to worry about mm-hmm. in this season and there's fox studio probably the fox studios the people on top are probably always like blah, blah get get them out get them out get them out and like there's pressures in a lot of places but i don't see any of that i just see the show and it's not very good <laughs> a lot of the times and you've uh, you've told me like you know i think you the fixes fix this episode stuff is um the best part of the show a lot of the times and i people complain like it's you're so negative i'm like well you watched this (laughs) like i've like i've watched 10 years of it 10 years of bad simpsons at this point Mm -hmm. and that's more than the good at this there's more bad than good at where i'm at in the show where we are at in the show and i try and remain positive like i i feel like we have season 21 has picked up a little bit like the episodes are somewhat better some of them and that's enough like i think i even said that this week where i'm like i'm just hoping the next one is better than the last one Mm -hmm. if it's even incrementally better then that's a good that's a good sign uh it doesn't have to and like it and i will say it's there's no there's no like marge uh sexually assaulting her husband there's no (laughs) homer framing marges for duis there's no like weird chinese racism episodes like where we just go to china and be racist
0: mm-hmm. like and, or the entire continent
1: of africa that was... oh god almighty that episode oh
0: god it was, so bad watching it was um, you were visibly concerned watching it i the first time it came out i remember like wow this is what are they doing <laughs> no <laughs> i know and it and,
1: it, and it and it's you why and like you watch it out and it's not like that episode came like if it came out in 1990 I would go. Eh, that's that's thirty years ago, you know. And I think there's a certain time period where you're like, it's culturally acceptable and stuff like that. Like, even though it's not right, it's mm-hmm. still gross. But when it's in 2005, you're like, yeah. I was in high school in 2000. I was I was in college in 2005. Like, I knew then that this wasn't okay. Like, are all the people on the show just going like, oh yeah, it's fine? The co- Africa is just mm. a one. It's one landmass and it's all the same. And you're like, that's, there's many, many. It was like sub
0: Ernest goes to somewhere. Oh, uh, like yeah, Ernest goes to Africa. DHS. Also really <laughs>
1: racist. But, uh, and like, it's like, you said, Like I think of like Ace Ventura 2. Like, you know, that's a huge comedy. One it was really, if you made that today, oh my lord, people would rightfully so go, what the hell are you doing? Mm-hmm. What? And, and I think that's the like there's blinders on for a lot of people because they get trapped in a particular time mm-hmm. period of in their cultural mindset. Like this is a social mindset where this is okay. Mm-hmm. But nowadays you're like,
0: it, it's not bad. It's good. We're more aware of these things. Well, going back to the good seasons, yeah, and the, yeah, good, yeah, the good yeah. years, please uh, keep me on track. The bad ones and the good ones. Uh, we were thinking, boy, it would be interesting to, to have some fun thinking back on our favorite Jurassic park references that were in the show. Um, that mostly would be from, when the, the film ones. came out in the '94ish, uh, I think is when yeah. they would have, they would have been able to see it in '93, reference it in '94, which is still a pretty quick turnaround in terms of how long it takes to make a make an episode. But uh, the first one that comes to mind is Stampy uh, when uh, Bart opens the curtain and he gets an elephant, and uh, Stampy's eyeball is there. So that episode came out in '94, which means they had to have that. Basically, we got to put this in the in the episode right away. Jurassic Park obviously was on everybody's mind at the time, but uh, that's a pretty quick turnaround to get a reference into a cartoon. Yeah, I I wonder, like,
1: I I often think about the references The Simpsons make and, like, the turnaround. Like, that's the thing where they've shown their age because South Park has such quick turnaround time on their animation. They can make those cultural references from things that happened a week ago Mm. or two weeks ago. But The Simpsons have six to nine months at least. And, you know, maybe that, like... I'm wondering, like, was that the 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 eye, the T-Rex eye? Was that in an early Jurassic Park trailer, maybe? And they saw that. That like, I try and think of things like that. Like, did they to get a heads up? Did they like, or did was that a late insert? Because they can like, if it's, oh, I know sure. they. If you listen to director's commentary on this substance stuff, they, they they talk about throwing in like a small little bit. Because they, they can get in, they can turn it like a, if it's a two second or five second clip, they can get that animation done relatively quickly if, as an emergency, like, hey, get this done, get this through. And I'm thinking, like, either those are, it's those things like, well, if there's, if that happened real fast after the thing came out, like Jurassic Park, it's either, I'm thinking, like, did they see an early trailer or did they go, no, we have to make, mm-hmm. we have an elephant <laughs> episode. Jurassic Park's hot. We all, and then, like, uh, Jurassic Park's great and everyone saw it and it was everyone I was obsessed with it I was a kid but I was obsessed with it everyone was obsessed with it maybe they were like oh well why can't we do this you know when you have that fun little idea throw it in there have the the, the throw the callback to the, the t-rex and maybe that's it I don't
0: know so uh off the top of my head I could think of about three pretty solid Jurassic Park references that get into the into the show which ones jump to your mind right away
1: uh, Billy and the Clonosaurus <laughs> is my first is my first the first thing I think of immediately I go yeah the the
0: and it's the, the best bare, it's the best the, <laughs> the,
1: the the very bare but like it's I don't know I and I've heard as a per, also as an author who sits you know who goes to and sells books at shows a lot of the time you get lots of people who come up to you and tells you and tell you their book idea or their story idea mm-hmm. and you have to sit there patiently and listen and be a just be and be patient even though you are most universally you're like this is uh you're you're just describing a dozen other stories that already exist Mm -hmm. you can't this you're not gonna and like and people are like i wanted to be a writer i'm like i i I don't want to tell you just (laughs) go sit down and write man it's not a it's not romantic but um but a poo's reaction yes Is (laughs) is <laughs> it is what I want to do? It is what I want to do when I hear that. I want to yell. I'm like, those that exist, man. You can't.
0: <laughs> yeah. How can you
1: be so oblivious?
0: A 10 minute but, tirade in a time lapse, and then actually, what I meant to say was, thank you. Coming Yes. <laughs> thank you. Coming again. <laughs> exactly. That's too funny. Um, I had to cheat to find more Jurassic Park references. Oh. I mean, there's the. I don't
1: know. I used to be like the obsessive simpsons fan i oh i have to remember all this stuff Mm -hmm. but now that i've seen so many episodes and i do the podcast and you can hear it when we do trivia like i just i don't remember anything anymore it's all and so like and when i when people are like i have to look up references i'm like that's no that's normal human behavior like it's not normal to remember everything and if you can i applaud you that's matt matt has like you know, mm-hmm. his brain is like a, a freaking encyclopedia, especially when it comes to Simpsons. I like, get so frustrated that he remembers all this stuff. But, but it's normal to have to look. I don't know. Also, I think maybe I'm just getting old and my brain's deteriorating. Mm-hmm. But,
0: well, they're not yeah. important things to have to recall, but uh, there was. No, exactly. It's small things here and there. There was a, a more recent Treehouse of Horrors, I think, that was uh, one of the segments was like. Uh, the senior citizens in in springfield all became dinosaurs or something like that and there was... that is
1: not a very good <laughs> that tree as a in general was not good and that segment was not there. i w- i could rewatch it maybe my mind would be different but i'm pretty sure it was not very good but...
0: i just liked how maybe the character design in terms of how do you make the characters into dinosaurs i think that was okay i don't imagine the rest of it was any good
1: no, I mean, it, that's like at this point, Trails of Hours will always give you that. And mm. I can appreciate that. Like character designs, fun, new, different character designs. And The Simpsons have always been great at that. Even in the worst shows, the worst episodes, you're always going to like, when it's a winter episode, everyone's in their snow gear. It feels real. It feels nice. And I, you know, the fun designs in science fiction, horror, Trails of Hours stuff is always fun. Like it feels like it is another thing where like it took this long. For you to do like a Jurassic Park yeah. thing, where like there's, I mean, and with Jurassic World and the the new movies, like you have a, a layup to yeah. do anything with it, but instead you just do this weird old people as dinosaurs thing, and I'm like, can I just get a direct parody of Jurassic, yeah. like Jurassic Park? Like, can I just have? the family and this and the townspeople as the employees we we have burns as hammond it's right there it is so easy Mm -hmm. like put lenny like you you
0: know you have you have like the my eye i'm not uh, supposed to get velociraptors in uh, it uh,
1: (laughs) exactly it's so like right there it's right there and we just like it's those things like your layout like that's a layup. Why didn't we ever get it? And, like, it's not too late. You could easily, like, yeah. no one's going like, to be upset if they did a Jurassic Park uh, parody or just a straight one. Like, why can't we get Jurassic Park instead of the shitting? Like, we got the shitting. The shitting is great. Can we just get Dra- Ju- Jurassic Park as mm-hmm. a no? Okay. We have Geriatric Park, and it's like, eh, not great. I mean, there's also a chicken scratchy land that is mm-hmm. sort of, but that's more Westworld. You know, and it's definitely more, more Westworld. Or Fr- my that's Crichton as well, but there's no dinosaurs.
0: No, on, Frank does mention Chaos Theory or something like that at one yes, point. Yes, he does. I he watched this last and, you know, night. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. And it's there, The Itchy and Scratchy Land is there, but it's not quite the same. And I mean, it's good. Don't get me wrong. Itchy and Scratchy Land is a mm-hmm. great episode. But yeah, and it's Westworld and it's still in the Simpsons universe. Yes. There's no completely fantastical things in it and i kind of want to see people get eaten by dinosaurs yeah
0: so our last treehouse of horrors they did um that one bit where it's simpsons land instead of west world and uh all of the scenes so people could go and visit the simpsons land and and revisit their favorite moments from the show and stuff like that that was really clever i thought that yeah i, was put I, I really like
1: that great. a lot um i i honestly this this year's halloween's are because they did the full it parody which i love I want full parody episodes, like I was talking about with Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. They just did it with with it, and that was good. Um, the Jurassic Horror, proper Jurassic Horror was also good, and that like that weird meta thing was a lot of fun. So I had to, yeah. I had to come
0: up with some honorable mentions. I think Itchy and Scratchy Land was one of them, because it's not yeah. Jurassic Park specific. And then no. it's just like, other oh, fun dinosaur references. Obviously, Bart sells his soul, has a terrific moment where Bart has five bucks, gets a <laughs> the dinosaur sponge, and thinks he's going to unleash it on Lisa. And then it's a disappointing failure. But, uh, no, the
1: the sponges. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: But uh, that that was a fun moment. The other one where dinosaurs show up is, I think, another Trios of Horrors where he wishes he didn't squish that fish uh, with the magic toaster or something. Oh, like Oh, yeah. The tri- uh, time and punishment is that what that's called?
1: That it's called time. Of, I remember. I love. I mean, it's a the literary references will stick with me. So. Mm-hmm the time and punishment to crime and punishment oh, and there's now. all kinds but, of i mean time things. and punishment's is a great transport segment it's yeah really fun. it's very it's in, in ray bradbury you know it's another yeah. science fiction author so it's it's hard to i like it's like i would love to be the fly on the wall in some of those simpsons writer's rooms yeah. and see how their their thought process is and and even the bad years too like i would so curious to hear like how does this what work did, yeah what do they talk like was there anyone in that room who would be like, man, this is bad? And they'd be like, well, we have to turn it in. We don't have any more time. And you're like, well, okay. Mm-hmm. i And like, is it as simple as that? You know, maybe it is. Maybe it is just like, oh, we, re- we are out of time. Mm-hmm. This is the best we can do.
0: Well, kind of speaking about running out of time, last time we spoke, you, didn't, uh, you hadn't yet had time to finish reading the book. And then, God bless you, when you did finish, you emailed me back and said, I'm done and I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> what... What makes Jurassic Park a re-readable book, do you think? I mean, it's – I use the word a breezy
1: read. I feel like I should cringe when I say that, okay. but I don't think it's – it's not a bad thing. That's like I write breezy books, I think, like even if they're horror books and filled with blood and, and guts. But, like, they're they're quick and punchy, even though Jurassic Park's not, like, a short book, but mm-hmm. it, the way it's structured and the way that it – like, Crichton was a master at crafting – uh, at, at, at putting new hooks along the way uh, to pull the reader through it. Um, I mean, there's a lot, some of it's nostalgia. Like, I've read it when I was a kid for the first time. I loved it. And I read it a lot when I was a kid. And rereading it now it just makes me think of those times. It makes me think, and I think a lot of times, but I think it's the Craig's writing style is very approachable. And I push back whenever someone, uh, usually a snooty person, goes it's easy it's an easy read like eh, it's too it's not Mm -hmm. a real book like it has to be literature it has to be you have to like struggle to read a good book I'm like no that's not true whatsoever Mm -hmm. it's very readable meaning it makes sense it's like and to be fair Jurassic Park has the book has a huge cast there's a lot of moving parts and it dances between all of them really well and that helps, and it keeps things fresh and it keeps you pulling, it pu- keeps pulling you through that mm-hmm. book. I, I think rereading it, I hadn't gotten very, like, I got our last, the last time it was at airport. So I read a little past that mm-hmm. uh, when we got there. At this point, I reread the whole thing. And this is the one thing I think I've re- I forgotten between this and my last read. Lex, <laughs> I can't, I can't. It's just that it's, it's everything else is like, oh, this is great. I love it. You know, it's a lot of fun. It's this great adventure. Oh boy, Lex, the the yelling. There's just a lot of a kid yelling at things, and Mm -hmm. and 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 like I, I, like it makes sense. A little girl because they, you know, they she's much younger in the book than she is in the movie. The the constant yelling about dinosaurs and being scared and wanting to like, I'm hungry.
0: (laughs) Shut up. I find that your body.
1: You're, you're, he's trying to save you from dinosaurs, man. Like, calm down.
0: She doesn't get it. I, I, because I'm looking at this so closely, uh, I look at like the ISO cam on every character, every chapter, and she is the most italicized character for not for the (laughs) best, right? But I don't know. Maybe Crichton just didn't know how to relate. Uh, She should be terrified. She should be like wet in her pants. She should be cowering. She should be, you know, like I've got uh, nieces and nephews that like when they're shy they're you know clinging to an adult or something and lex doesn't do that she's just a brat which is strange like it it, and you know Craig won't be the first guy that didn't you know write children well not (laughs) there's you watch any tv kids just aren't done well uh when they are done well it's a masterpiece and they make it in the netflix super series but um (laughs) other than that like it's it's really challenging yeah catching the voice of a seven-year-old uh I mean, I think,
1: I think largely that explains why they aged up the kids for the Mm -hmm. movie. Like it, like Tim in the movie is the younger child, but he's also older than even Lex is in the book. Mm -hmm. And Lex is a a teenager, an early teen. Like it makes sense. Like, Oh, well we can give them a little bit more personality. They're not just like when a kid is that little, they're not going to have that much. There's not going to be that much nuance when they're being chased by dinosaurs. Mm -hmm. And in the movie, they sell the the, the trauma um of the, the, the kids receive a little bit better. Like it's a little bit a good mixture of that the sense of wonder of being surrounded by these incredible creatures that have never existed with humans before, with the terror of yes, but but they're also incredibly dangerous because we have never lived with them before. We we and like, you know, that is a it's a theme of, of the novel and the movie is just like this is dangerous this is not this is not something you can just do on a lark you're you're basically you know like unleashing monsters on the world before on the on the world again mm-hmm. and you can't control them and i think that that's another theme is the control of like we think oh we can because we created it we can control it mm-hmm. and the idea of chaos theory and like these things are inherently uncontrollable lex it stood out to me like i think that's the like i was rereading i'm like and i'm engrossed. and i'm reading i'm falling around and they're getting it's the other like another thing that came up is very much the the adaptation to the movie and it's like it's another like there's very very few books where i can point at the movie and say it's as good or better mm-hmm. and in this case well like it's like this and fight club like those are my two go-to's like where i say like are there people ask that question like are there any movies that are actually better than the books i'm like Better is a hard word. The nature of adaptation makes them so inherently different. Like a book is not a movie, and a movie is not a book. Mm-hmm. But I look at the like Fight Club the book versus Fight Club the movie. The experience is as good, like of, of ingesting that oh, story. Sure. And and, and that. But and Jurassic Park is the same way, where the the nature of adapting it to a movie made to and obviously Spielberg, he's a master, mm-hmm. and I think he's a good analog for Crichton in. A film world in that he is very good at crafting like digestible stories while still maintaining a strong sense of art and mm-hmm. artistic vision like you still understand like spielberg Ooh. is he's still making movies obviously but there is you know, like if you talk about a film and you call it it's very spielbergian you know what that means everyone it has a language and when i when i describe my own book as Crichton esque that is also you understand that immediately you know what that means Mm -hmm. and i think the movie benefits by being it's movie it's only 90 minutes a book is long you have to have you know a journey through you can just shortcut a movie and like Mm -hmm. suddenly where did you know the 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 kids and grant you don't need to watch them trudging through a jungle for and for three hours they Mm -hmm. just jump and suddenly oh there's gallimimus and it's daylight (laughs) That's even right. though even though we don't see what happens in between, like they, they are sleeping in a tree uh, and oh look, it's a, a Vegisaurus, and then it, suddenly it's daylight and there's channel yeah. minus.
0: You make a good observation I think earlier with the, the concept of the the breezy reed. we'll use that in quotes mm-hmm. <laughs> But uh, the idea it's that fine. taking taking that concept something excellent, something exciting and then making it more broadly accessible, and then maybe Spielberg did that. There is a lot of artistry in terms of how do you put these movies together, and uh, and he's become one of the most popular directors of all time, and when he does things like Saving Private Ryan and things like that, where maybe not everybody goes to see a film like this, but when he makes them, they, are, they have a connectivity to the public that really extends beyond just like a niche audience. Like, it's not just action adventures. He... It's like when a punk band has like a slow single and it, it hits the country station or something like that, and all of a sudden, uh, it's their biggest single because it whole—it's just a whole new audience that is able to connect with it. And I wonder if Crichton and Spielberg were able to to capture into that vein that they could take something special and niche but make it for everyone. I
1: mean, it's—it uh, comes back around to you connect to the characters, you connect
0: yeah. to the
1: approachable character that you can see yourself in that has that is not a perfect person mm-hmm. there are they are they're flawed um even in th- things like jurassic park whereas like they are they're not going through big character arcs but like you even you like i i think the other th- the, like those are the two big differences between the book and the movie that i think are good the change is like is lex aging up the kids but also Hammond. I think Hammond in the mm-hmm. movie mm-hmm. is much more interesting to me than Hammond in the book. Hammond in the book is more just like a kind of bumbling idiot. Really? He's, he's rich and like, it works in a different way. Um, it's not that it's bad. And then i and it kind of has to be that way. Nedry is the clear antagonist, human antagonist in the movie. While Hammond is more just like he's, 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 he's elderly. And, but he has this like dream. He has this vision oh, oh, this is what I'll do. It'll be like, it'll be like the circus. You know, he has, like, in it, you see, he is the one who has really the arc because he realizes, like, oh, no, this is a bad idea. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wish I should have done this. Because um, his, his grandchildren are in danger and, he, he, you know, all these people get killed by these dinosaurs. And he's just like, you know, it's, this is a mistake. There's hum- humanity in that. Mm-hmm. There's humanity in I have this dream i want to accomplish it i'm going to go to great lengths to do it and then i realized it was a mistake and that's something that a lot of people can you you, everyone has a goal in a dream in life and then mm-hmm. you realize oh i sh- i have to pivot i have to change i have to change my mind <clears throat> i've seen and the error of I, my ways yes <laughs> yeah exactly uh, like and it's humanity mm-hmm. you know you can recognize the humanity of these people and you connect it back to what made the golden era of the simpsons great mm-hmm. it is that humanity i i often criticize new episode newer episodes of the simpsons because this is not human behavior like yeah. humans don't act like this mm-hmm. these are cartoon characters and that is how you connect to somebody you recognize their their core humanity and even in like even Nedry in the book that's another thing that I, that I picked up is very much like even nedry who's a, ostensibly the villain i there i did notice there's like i think there's a subtle kind of anti-capitalist thing going on at, at pete parts because hammond is this rich guy thinks he can just do whatever he wants because he's off his own he's on, on his own island you know and he has the he can he has no laws really forbidding him mm-hmm. it's very um it reminds me of ayn randy and kind of a villain from bioshock uh, even where I'm sure Bioshock took stuff from Jurassic Park. I almost guarantee (laughs) it. Um, But it is that, like, and, like, Nedry, I understand the Nedry in the book better than I understand. Like, I empathize with him a little bit because you're, like, everyone has had that boss who's, like, this is the deal. You need to do more work. I'm, like, well, you didn't pay me to do more work. Mm -hmm. But then, but and everyone has that in their mind, like, you get, you know, grumble you under your breath and you're stuck. You're stuck there. You have mm-hmm. to do the work because it will hurt you in the long run. And then Nedry, you're like, well, well, he's like, well, Nedry's not necessarily like, Oh, I'm going to unleash dinosaurs on everyone. He's just mm-hmm. like, I'm just going to steal some stuff from them, get, take the money and run. They won't even notice it until they're gone. Mm-hmm. And then things
0: fall apart. I picture Nedry, what happens to him. Do you, uh, you remember the film, The Life of Pi? Yes. Yeah. And so... They very publicly bankrupted the special effects company that made the lion. The lion was legit. Yeah. it was super good, but they they were budgeted to do it, and then the overages bankrupt them <laughs> to finish the film and I don't know what ever happened to those people, but like yeah, that film, which was really cool a good a good film, great book, um yeah, it killed a whole company of of people who were working pretty hard and doing good jobs. And uh, and I pictured Nedry's kind of like that company in that he he got this gig he was contracted to do it then they changed the parameters and he was his he wasn't gonna make any money on it he was losing money on it he couldn't afford to keep working on it and so this opportunity to get uh, a little money back was really just getting like getting even like not even getting vengeance <laughs> it was just no how do I move forward.
1: Yeah, and it's and it and then you it's a little bit more understandable than the Nedry in the movie who seems just greedy, mm-hmm. like like and like they
0: he's doing it for fun and, almost he's childish in a lot of ways. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. And then like you know you hired Wayne Knight <laughs> who he's great at that particular like you know he's good in that kind of role where mm-hmm. he's like childish and cartoonishly evil mm-hmm. in, to sort like Newman and Seinfeld is that same kind of like he just seems to thrive on mm-hmm. causing chaos and mayhem within jerry's life in seinfeld and it's like Nedry is not too far removed just a mm-hmm. little bit he's just smarter yeah. um but not too smart because he still gets at by a dilophosaurus
0: <laughs> yeah he's a good comedic actor for sure yeah yeah he's exactly. really good at
1: that but that's not like that's the thing like he's a good comedic actor he's not sam Neill, you know he's not Samuel l jackson no. <laughs> you know he's 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 for that good, perfectly for that supported comedic role. Mm. But in this case, he's like the antagonist. You know, he's like, oh, I'm going to, he's going to set that chain into motion. But he's really just an agent of chaos. And literally in this case, he is like that. Yeah. <laughs> There's, and I mean, I think that's, that's interesting to me. The fact that they, I think Crichton does it very well. It mixes that dif- different kind of layers of, of thematic element where it's like you have discussions about chaos theory throughout the book and the movie. And, but then you have actual people kind of represent those agents of chaos. Mm -hmm. Like you have, and like, I, that's the way I can respect Lex in the, like the kind of in some, sometimes really insane behavior, but she's a kid Kids do act crazy. Sometimes I was just, and it was really funny during the holidays. I went on a drive through Safari with my niece and she's, she's only three, but, and you know, you drive through and you see, Oh, there's gazelles and there's zebras and stuff like that. And they're pretty close to the car, but they're not dangerous. Uh, it's not Jurassic Park, but it is that kind of experience of like you're driving through, and she's a little girl, and she's just like suddenly scared of mm-hmm. uh, an, an emu, you know, and, and like that—that that is the thing of like emus, like that's a dinosaur, yeah. Like that's the thing you, where you like you drive by and there's like big emu like right next to the car, and it's as tall as the car, and it's huge, and it has like the the dinosaur like looks like dinosaur talons on the end of its feet, and you're like, mm. man, that's just a dinosaur, like we. <laughs> They got it, like, it's right. It's birds. And it's just like, and you're like, I get it. Why you'd be, you would be scared. You'd be terrified if one of those things came up to you.
0: Yeah. There's a lot of things out there that they've got it in their head that they're going to come and take what you've got, that it would be bad news for, like, even a squirrel. Like, if it decided, hey, I'm going <laughs> to, I want what's in your I mean, pockets. Like, oh my God, get off of you're me. You're
1: going to, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's those, it's those, and I think that's the other. I really do like the fact that they have the the compies as like an actual danger mm-hmm. in the book and they don't I that like like I there's no more time in that movie's kind of like a perfect movie, so I don't want to say, Oh they should have that. Mm-hmm. And they do use the copies in the in the second one, uh, yeah. In the second one. So it's there. Um I like, you know, and you talk about the changes, like the book has the water scenes. I love the water. Well, like that's and they use those in some of the sequels. Unfortunately, the sequels just aren't as good movies
0: well i think it's the same matter as with with um with the simpsons in that as they move forward they lose that character-centric perspective and you're right what spielberg did really elevated what Crichton did really did and i think it's because it's got that character centered uh, focus even at the end of the film it was so contrived like oh we got to wrap this up and grant's like i'm not going to recommend or endorse your park and grant uh, hammond says i agree or something like that that's it <laughs> yeah, yeah, like exactly. oh he's come full circle okay and then they hop on it like they have a little moment outside the center where they're running for their lives. <laughs> there's like a bloodbath happening around the corner they're like oh, i don't know we'll yeah. stop and we'll chat about this hop in the van and uh be on our way
1: i mean it <laughs> is it is i think it is a, the the difference in cinema over the years where the like the wheat wheat josh wheat Whedon, Josh whedon-esque like quips superhero stuff has infected everything so much of art now is just every character is comedy now every character has quips there's no serious characters really even the serious characters are played for laughs because they are so serious I don't know you can watch you watch 94 Jurassic Park and yeah they have that quip there at the end there's little quips here and there but it maintains that tone where yeah it keeps it like it is a that that is that right balance I think and it feels so different though it is like yeah there's a bloodbath happening they wash they just wash a a a, they just outran a swarm of velociraptors (laughs) dodging into like duck work in a ceiling and hiding in freezers and locking them like and then a t-rex bursts in and and is fighting velociraptors in honestly an incredibly epic thing yeah um you know with a banner falling bursting through the the old t-rex fossil it's perfect and they have that that quip in there at the end but i feel like the and not like a part of it is the williams score yeah, where like yeah. because the the music changes and therefore and the, t- the tension is kind of released and they're like oh they're safe now yeah. because the the <laughs> yeah. music and like it feels very much like oh there are not, they're safe even though yeah there's like dinosaurs like that terrible monster that you've been running from monsters you've been running from for for a day, basically, mm-hmm. is right behind you. <laughs> you know, maybe it's less than 500 feet away and we're having <laughs> quips, but because you're outside, the the lighting has changed, the music has changed, it's communicated, you're safe now. It's okay for that quip to be there because you're not in danger. There's no quips like that when they're running from the velociraptors. Uh, if, any, if there's any humor at all, it is kind of black mm-hmm. comedy. It is dark. You know, it's like that when... Mm-hmm. The, the arm, yeah. you know, uh the, lands on to uh, well,
0: uh Dr. Sapp. Well, Malcolm yeah. kind of gets a few. Like, do you think they'll have that on the tour? Oh, uh, well, yeah. Malcolm. <laughs> Malcolm's Jeff Goldblum, the one exception. There's also, yeah. there's also
1: certain actors that can just break it, break the rules. Jeff Goldblum is one of them. You are uh, like,
0: going to have uh, dinosaurs on your ride. Uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, he's got I, all the lines,
1: yeah. That's beautiful.
0: And he's a fan favorite, I think, because they give him all the lines. But he nailed it, yeah. Of, of course. He's, <laughs> he's, he's Jeff Goldblum. He knows what he's doing. We are plumb out of time once again, but I'm so mm-hmm. I'm so glad we had a chance to do this again. Thanks for coming back. Keep up the good work yes. on the show. Tell people where they can go to sign up for your newsletter and uh, check out RobbieDorman.com
1: is the website. It has everything, all links to all my things. Sign up for a newsletter. You sign up, you get two free books, exclusive books. But I, you also, it will send you. I get send one every month. That's where you need to go. My newest book is the other. It's an extra. It's Exorcist meets The Notebook. I, that's my shorthand elevator pitch, but. <laughs>
0: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. I'm so glad you were here. Thank you so much. All right. A great big thank you to Robbie Dorman for returning to the show. Thank you so much for coming back. I appreciate it. He, he let me know when he finished rereading the book and uh, and said, hey, I'm ready to come back on the show. And uh, that's just the best. Thanks so much. Uh, The text this week is The Park, spanning from pages 244 to 251. In a synopsis, Muldoon leads the cleanup crew in the park to repair the fences. Meanwhile, Harding and Hammond are out wrangling the dinosaurs, which have escaped and returning them to their paddocks. They all return to control, where Muldoon argues with Hammond about not having any weapons strong enough to tackle the big wrecks. As their argument spills into the hallway, John Arnold explains to Donald Gennaro all the reasons why he believes Ian Malcolm and his chaos theory are wrong and therefore Jurassic Park is perfectly safe. Characters: Robert Muldoon. Muldoon is leading the cleanup crew. On page 244, this project isn't a big job and should only take about 20 minutes. When Ramon points out the headlights near the river, Muldoon disregards them. A, he's got work to do, and B, getting away from the blinding spit of the Dilophosaurs becomes a priority. The repair crew removes the protocarpus tree from the fence, and they have to replace some burst ceramic insulators. And to do that, Arnold will have to turn the fences off again to do the repairs on page 249. The radios are working again, now that we're no longer in the thick of the storm, and Arnold shuts just this section down. But Muldoon is worried about the Dilophosaurs. He can hear them hooting in the distance. Muldoon is unarmed and thus unequipped to extract the Tyrannosaur from the sauropod paddock. Especially at night, on page 250, we're told. Back in the control room with Hammond and Harding, Muldoon is reiterating he's not going out into the park at night to try to stop the Tyrannosaur. No way, no how. It's a full-grown Tyrannosaur, and all they've got are 20cc tranquilizer darts, which are suitable for like 500-pound animals, not 8-ton animals. She won't even feel those darts. Now, Hammond's shrewd weapons management has finally come home to roost, and he's realized that there are no weapons capable of stopping it at wrecks despite Muldoon's request for three larger weapons, and the singular one he was permitted has gone missing along with Nedry's jeep. It's your park, Mr. Hammond. You didn't want anybody to be able to injure your precious dinosaurs. Well, now you've got the rex in with the sauropods, and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. On page 250 and 251, Muldoon says. and Then he walks straight out of the room. Mic drop. (laughs) Hammond chases after him, and they continue their argument in the hall. Carlos! This is one of the workmen, and for now he is carrying a big power saw. That's all we know about him. Ramon, another other workman, this one has a Spanish accent and is likely one of the local workers from Costa Rica that's been employed at the resort that we were told of way back in episode 2, The Bite of the Raptor, where it is said that many of the local people were employed in construction on page 2. Ramon refers to Muldoon as Señor Muldoon offering titular respect, and wants to make sure his boss is aware of the lights, which Muldoon ignores on page 245. Muldoon encourages Ramon to hurry. They don't want the Dilophosaurs finding them on page 249. Ramon is also a capable electrician, I believe. John Arnold. Arnold gets a bit glib in this chapter. It's his job to operate the park controls, and he feels like the park is almost under control again, which gives him a sense of pride and perhaps allows him to gloat a bit. And Crichton describes this as being, quote, in an expansive mood on page 245. Arnold isn't necessarily a villain in this novel, in so much as, like, John Hammond is portrayed, but he is filled up to the rim with the tragic sin of hubris. And this moment where he laughs at the Malcolm effect and braggadociously declares that Malcolm is, quote, wrong, is a warning flare that he's gonna get his comeuppance in a Crichton novel. Quote, you mean you want me to tell you why Ian Malcolm is wrong? Asks Arnold. It's implied that Arnold feels that Hammond only invited Malcolm to apply chaos theory to Jurassic Park because it was the trendy thing to do. Malcolm predicted that the behavior of the system, as plotted in phase space by applying chaos theory, has inherent instabilities, and that Jurassic Park could, quote, suddenly collapse. And while chaos theory is useful in describing real systems, Arnold didn't view it this way. He still feels like this is a computer model working in theoretical space, and so they, quote, disagreed with it and ignored it, of course. on page 246. This is due to Arnold's unflinching belief that he is correct and that the, quote, hell of a goddamn system that they're operating at Jurassic Park fills him with great pride. Quote, we're dealing with living systems after all. This is life, not computer models. He'll, of course, be punished for this. Arnold doubles down on rejecting chaos theory on page 247. He explains... Living systems are not like mechanical systems. They are never in equilibrium. They're inherently unstable. They may seem stable, but they're not. Everything is moving and changing. In a sense, everything is on the edge of collapse. With, quote, body temperature, serving as an example of the... constant fluctuation of a living system, Arnold convinces Gennaro that living systems are inherently unstable on page 248. And when Gennaro begins to question him on the on his perspective on the difference between Malcolm's calculations and their implications on living and mechanical systems, Arnold cuts him off. He doesn't want to hear any more about Malcolm, especially from Gennaro, who doesn't know anything. Arnold presents the data on the screens Showing that the park is almost back online, except the telephones. Recall, there were only three cutouts in the fence, which is pretty good, all things considered. Quote, and that's not theoretical, that's a fact. When requested by Muldoon to shut off a section of the fence for repairs, he complies on page 249, but otherwise Arnold has been working on restoring the phone lines. Upon discovering the down fence between the Tyrannosaur and Cerepo- Sauropod paddocks, Arnold says they'll have to get the T Rex out of there, but Muldoon is unarmed. And Arnold knows and tells Muldoon that Hammond won't like them not trying to stop the Tyrannosaur from killing more dinosaurs on page 250. When Gennaro suggests that having an, un- an unstoppable Tyrannosaur in the park may indicate that Arnold doesn't actually have everything under control, Arnold denies him, saying, don't kid yourself. We have the park. It'll be done in a couple of hours. We may lose a couple dinos before we get the wrecks out of there, but believe me, we have the park on page 251. Dr. Harding, he has gone off to transfer, quote, the animals, on page 245. We'll learn that the hypsilophodon and the stegosaur are out of their paddocks, and recall the stegosaur was beneath the tree in the tyrannosaur paddock in the chapter Tim. While moving the hypsilophodon, Harding is careful to ensure its head isn't hanging over the leather straps because it may impede circulation through the car- carotid artery, which is perhaps a detail we're to read into his proficiency as a biologist and a veterinarian, on page 246. Procedurally, the animal was tranquilized, hoisted up with leather straps, and loaded into the back of a flatbed truck. Harding is admitted to have guessed at the quantity of tranquilizer to bring down a 500-pound dryosaur. The risks were that they run off and collapse where they can't be reached, or that they experience cardiac arrest, but this one was caught perfectly. Harding resists Hammond's intrusive commands of the workers, asking him to stop shouting at them. When Hammond complains at some more... Harding pleads with his boss to let his workers do their work without the extra pressure. They are being careful, says Harding, pleading with Hammond to listen and quit shouting at his workers. Harding equips a cardiogram collar to monitor the hipsy's heartbeat and uses a turkey baster-sized thermometer in its rectum. Again, these are all clinical observations that an adroit veterinarian would be making. And hey, we get some of Harding's backstory. No first name but at least a little bit of his resume. He has been the chief of veterinary medicine at the San Diego Zoo and the world's leading expert on avian care on page 247. The world's leading expert. He consulted with zoos in Europe, India, and Japan on caring for exotic birds. But note, if you're from England, the common American robin becomes an exotic bird. So, like, if he's traveling to where the birds are, he's exotic to them. Literally, it means they're from a distant or foreign country, but if he travels to Europe to care for birds, the European birds in Europe are not exotic, but perhaps the emphasis here is that he is drawn to caring for birds that are exotic to him, and has familiarized himself with how to care for birds of many types from all over the world. I'm just taking umbrage with Crichton's use of exotic. Note, here's a fun piece of trivia. The Lost World's Dr. Sarah Harding is Jurassic Park's Dr. Harding's daughter, it is canon, and here's how. From page 258 of my edition of The Lost World, which I mentioned before. How come you know all this anatomy, Kelly said. You don't have to know who Kelly is. She's just some kid asking hard questions. Sarah responds, I have to. I spend a lot of time looking through the scat of predators, she said, examining pieces of bones that are left behind it and figuring out which animals have been eaten. To do that, you have to know comparative anatomy very well. She moved the transducer along the baby's leg, and my father was a vet, she adds. Malcolm looked up sharply. Your father was a vet? Yes, at the San Diego Zoo. He was a bird specialist. But I don't see... Hey, can you magnify this? Her father was named Harding, who was a bird specialist and vet from the San Diego Zoo. And upon hearing this, Malcolm specifically, quote, looked up sharply. This is conclusively an Easter egg hidden in the lost world, bringing the two novels and the characters and their stories all together in a little more closely in this Jurassic Park universe. All right that's an aside that's neither here nor there but it's kind of neat going back to the the story today harding first saw hammond as a peculiar little man whom he had no interest in in page 247 but hammond's impossible accomplishments presented something truly exotic a new frontier for a medical ornithologist harding had an academic bent and he was tempted to write the first textbook of veterinary internal medicine diseases of dinosauria we learn he's ambitious the best in his field, and was basically bored with studying birds. Dinosaurs revitalized his passion, and he's never regretted taking this job. On page 247, the novelty of it all was a great inspiration. He's developed, quote, considerable expertise in handling the dinosaurs medically, but he believes he's the expert and doesn't want to listen to Hammond. After returning the hypsilophodon to its proper home, he injects Medrine, and it immediately recovers and slowly wakes up. On page 249, Harding and Hammond eventually return to the control room before the end of this chapter, which we know is about 10.30pm. When asked by Hammond, Harding asserts that the rex can feed off of a single sauropod kill for several days, as if they've had some experience with this. I mean, I would suppose one could calculate how much a rex eats and divide that by the total tonnage of a sauropod and predict how long a kill might last, but that's not quite how this part reads, though. And John Hammond. He has joined Dr. Harding to transfer the animals in the park on page 245. Arnold says that Hammond, quote, loves the latest scientific fad, so he had asked Malcolm to model the system at Jurassic Park, on page 245. While moving the Hypsilophidon, Hammond is shouting for the workers to be careful on 246. He sort of argues with Harding over the welfare of the Hypsilophidon and continues to fret over its vitality, on page 247. When the Hypsilophidon is returned to her paddock, Hammond appears worried that it's drooling, not hopping, and continuing to show his great concern for the animals. Yet, there's no mention while they're out in the park, that he's looking or scanning the foliage for his grandkids and Dr. Grant. you think you'd be sending up a flare or calling out to them, but nope, Hammond's not thinking that way, which is beyond mysterious, because it's inhuman. And fully within his character, I guess. Arnold implies that Hammond will be very upset that the Tyrannosaur is being left unmitigated in the sauropod paddock, where she'll l- surely kill some dinosaurs. Hammond returns to the control room after being out with Harding and paces, on page 250, worrying about how many sauropods the Rex will kill. Hammond, though, doesn't want any sauropods killed and wants to go out into the park to stop it. Tonight. When Muldoon refuses to go out after the wrecks in the nighttime, unarmed, Hammond pulls the are you forgetting you work for me card, which always goes over well, and he's rising up and down on the balls of his feet, which he always does when he is angry. He suggests they get the wrecks with the tranquilizer darts and wonders where the larger weapons are and wonders who's to blame that Nedry stole the rocket launcher, but Muldoon won't take any of Hammond's guff gives him a perfunctory rebuffing, and exits the room. Hammond hates that and chases after him, continuing their argument into the hallway. Workmen. There are plural workmen here, likely two. Harding would be administering the tranquilizer and perhaps overseeing the health of the animals, but the workmen are tying the straps and operating the hoist and driving the flatbed truck. Donald Gennaro. Gennaro continues serving as the audience's proxy, asking questions and giving Arnold and Malcolm reasons to elaborate on things they'd otherwise not be saying on page 245. This time he's curious about the Malcolm effect. When Arnold starts discussing constant change in the inherent instability of living systems, Gennaro becomes a quote straw man sounding board who offers up a few routine fly balls for Arnold to field so we as readers can get a greater understanding or explanation about Arnold's argument for living systems on page 247. Again, Gennaro is the reader's proxy, asking questions so through dialogue, Crichton can explain what's going on and why. Gennaro continues to prompt Arnold for a few more paragraphs, so Arnold's perspective on his argument with Malcolm can be fleshed out fully on page 248. Though when Arnold rather matter-of-factly says that Malcolm doesn't know what he's talking about, Gennaro responds as any of us probably would. Are you sure he didn't understand all that? He seems pretty clear on the difference between living and non-living on 248, but Arnold cuts him off. What's happening now? asks Gennaro in his exposition-inducing way as Arnold reveals that they discovered the fences down, indicating the Rex has entered the sauropod paddock on page 250. And upon witnessing Muldoon and Hammond's quarrel over the lack of weaponry to stop the Rex, Gennaro suggests to Arnold, quote, I guess you don't have control of the park yet after all, on page 251, because the Tyrannosaur is unstoppable. Dr. Ian Malcolm, we get a bit of a rundown on Malcolm from John Arnold's perspective. A little condescending, quote, Ian Malcolm is a mathematician specializing in chaos theory. Quite amusing and personable, but basically what he does, besides wear black, is use computers to model the behavior of complex systems. To Arnold, he says he dismissed Malcolm because, quote, he's just another theoretician. Sitting in his office, he made a nice mathematical model and never occurred to him that what he saw as defects were actual necessities on 248. The inherent instabilities in a model are indicative of a living system, he argues. While a little wobble can get worse until the whole system collapses in a mechanical system, they are essential to living systems. They are indicative that a system is healthy and responsive. Arnold is expressly trying to get the phones up and running so they can get Malcolm a doctor on page 249. Hypsilophodons Uh, This has a green head with dull eyes, and its tongue hangs out of its mouth on page 246. Recall, hypsilophidons are one of the species on the island discovered to be breeding, so this animal may be a male. The motion sensors only spot a single new hypsi, so they may not be great at breeding, or, more likely, I believe we're to accept that they're breeding just fine, but the rampant, explosive, problematic velociraptor population is preying upon the eggs and newborns. It's described as a small dryasaur, 7 feet long, weighing about 500 pounds, She was dark with green mottled brown spots and is breathing slowly. Harding reads its heart rate with a cardiogram collar and measures its temperature with a turkey baster-sized electronic thermometer, which presents a 96.2 degree temperature, which is down a degree and a half from the animal's usual temperature. I guess if you're reading a big rectum's temperature, you need a big thermometer. Oh, and a side note, 96.2 degrees is my wife's, I think, favorite band from back in the 90s. I think it was 96.2 degrees. That's the name of the band. After being loaded up and her vitals are stable, Harding is ready to get her back into her paddock. After being loaded up and her vitals are stable, Harding is ready to get the hipsy back into her paddock. When recovering from anesthetization, it snorts and kicks its powerful hind legs on page 248 and drools and moves slowly without hopping and will continue for about an hour until this sedative wears off. Tyrannosaurus! They discover the Tyrannosaur has entered the sauropod paddock, which Muldoon says will make for fine dining tonight. Dilophosaurs were reminded that the Dilophosaurs are always stay near the river on 244, that they're dangerous for their spitting, and thus could pose a threat to the workers even if they're separated by the fence, and we have them referred to as Dilos as their nickname. The Dilos, quote, hoot while the repairs are being made, and it makes Muldoon hurry. Localities. In the park. This spot in the park is near the cutout by the Jungle River, which we can hear gurgling nearby on page 244. It's also near where Nedry left the gas jeep behind, which can be spotted, quote, to the east through the jungle which Ramon spotted as they were, quote, were coming out on page 245. So this scene is set distantly to the west of where Nedry almost crashed his jeep into that concrete wall earlier. Theoretically, the compies must be crawling all over Nedry's corpse at this very moment, but there is no indication of this yet. Recall there are three cutouts in the park, we're told, and this one is near the Jungle River. In this region of the park, small protocarpus trees were planted because their feathery leaves conceal the fence from view. The other cutouts are by the sauropod paddock and the tyrannosaur paddock, but we discovered that one of the protocarpus trees broke free of their guy wires, and metal turnbuckles shorted out the fence. The ground crews were supposed to have used plastic-coated wires and ceramic turnbuckles near the fences so this type of problem would be avoided, but, quote, it happened anyway, says the novel, probably from Muldoon's point of view. Once again, as in almost every reference to the jungle river, Crichton reaffirms that the Dilophosaurs, quote, always stayed close to the river, on page 244. There's a fence between the workmen and the river, but the Dilophosaurs can spit through the fence, of course. And the fence is described as silver. The Hipsy Paddock. Presumably, the Hipsilophidon is returned to this paddock. All we're told about it is that there is a field and ground, and there are quartz lights. Though those lights may be originating from the flatbed truck that delivered it here, I don't know. Quartz lights doesn't seem like headlights. It sounds like the ground lights that they have in the park. Sauropod maintenance building. A low concrete roof is on the Sauropod maintenance building. A utility structure used for equipment, feed storage, and so on. On page 249, they're all around the park in each of the paddocks, we're told. Like the Sauropod paddock. From the camera by the Sauropod maintenance building, the Tyrannosaur paddock's fence appears like a shining wall of metallic mesh in the quartz light. On page 250, it's been trampled, knocked flat, and this indicates that the Tyrannosaur not only broke through the fence at the main road and out of her enclosure, but also through this section of the fence, separating her from the sauropods and hadrosaurs too. They are surprised because, recall, in the previous chapter, they believe the cutout was likely due to a fallen tree. Finding that the tyrannosaurus in among the sauropods presents a significant challenge. Illusions and references. The protocarpus tree. I'm not sure that this is a real thing. I looked up, uh, looked it up and, and see that there are trees that are referred to as protocarpus, but there are much more real plants of a very similar description called podocarpus. Uh, genus of conifer, which is part of the podocarp family of low maintenance shrub. So this might be a typo or misunderstanding or might be a real plant, but I'm guessing the latter, to be honest. We've seen a few instances where something sounds very close to the real thing, but is just off a little bit like the hematoxins which are a real thing and the helotoxins which are not real things it sounds convincing but doesn't hold up upon a closer inspection the malcolm effect we're finally going to get a bit of an explanation as to what this is uh it's been alluded to twice now by hammond and malcolm and the audience's proxy question asker Gennaro, who needs to have everything explained to him is here to ask questions about it. Arnold says expressly, I just told you the park is back in hand with no catastrophic Malcolm effect. So Arnold's literally tempting his fates now. I'll get more into the details of the Malcolm effect as we discussed the water dripping down your hand analogy later on in this episode. Carotid arteries. Harding ensures that the carotid artery of the hip isn't impeded. This artery delivers blood to your brain and head and face on page 246, if you were wondering. That the animal has dull eyes and a slack tongue may be an indication that the carotid artery is being impeded, but I think that we're to read that its eyes are dull and its tongue dangles because she has been tranquilized. Medrine. This is a drug Dr. Harding injects into the anesthetized hypsilophodon to snap it out of its sedation. The animal awakens almost immediately as a result on page 248. Medrine as a drug doesn't appear to be a thing, but it sounds like a drug. There's mitadrine that aids with low blood pressure. There's Medrol, which is an anti-inflammatory drug, but it appears that Medrine in and of itself isn't a thing. Again, Crichton has a medical doctorate. He's preparing to create the show ER with Spielberg while he's writing this manuscript based on his time as a med student. He should know this stuff. So perhaps this was uh, intentional? Recall he called hemotoxins toxins, and made up beta-alkaloids, which were probably beta-carboline alkaloids, and most egregiously he called an injured worker who had been mauled by a velociraptor a sick worker, as if he had somehow shared a toothbrush with someone that had active sores in its mouth and contracted a mauling that way somehow. Whatever medrine is, it isn't a good illusion or inclusion, and from a med school student, we should expect more from Crichton, I think. Unless there's a good reason to not include specific scientific descriptions of these things for, I don't know, legal purposes. Alright, stylistic techniques. Italics, a very fashionable theory. Very trendy to apply to any complex system where there might be unpredictability on page 245. Here, the emphasis is on fashionable, implying that it was unnecessary to apply chaos theory to Jurassic Park. It was only done to be trendy. Constantly. On page 248, stresses Arnold about body temperature changes. The emphasis is a reaffirmation of his confidence in this argument. Colon's use. They had difficulty finding the shortened section at first because there wasn't much to see. Colon. A small protocarpus tree was leaning against the fence. On page 244. Here, the colon is used to present an object in the sentence. In this case, it's also an object in the real world, a protocarpus tree. And I feel like a semicolon could also have done this equally well. It beeped. Colon. 96.2 degrees on page 247. This is pretty good. The thermometer signals that it's performed a reading, and then the colon presents what that reading is. This is straightforward, absent of rhetoric. It's clinical, in it's reporting, which is entirely sufficient in this context, and I like it. Quote, but to be the first person to care for a whole new class of animals, colon, that was something. 247. Again, the dinosaurs aren't the important part. What's important is presented by the colon, That it's the novelty that has lured Harding. The scarcity, the rarity, the oddity of the work. He was otherwise bored with his career. Uh, Apparently there was nothing new to add to medical care. If you believe that. Quote, look, colon, when I was working on missiles, we dealt with something called resonant yaw on page 248. So here, the look is introducing an object for Gennaro to observe, in this case, part of Arnold's past work experience. Semicolons. Quote, of course, none of this should have happened. Grounds crews were supposed to use plastic-coated wires and ceramic turnbuckles near fences. On 244, the semicolon here smacks these two clauses together efficiently. Although he was tired, Arnold was feeling good. semicolon. He was even in a mood to indulge the lawyer, Gennaro. On 245, here we have two clauses stuck together; they're related, so it's not unusual to use a semicolon here. Quote, in the late 20th century, veterinary medicine was scientifically advanced. Semicolon. The best zoos ran clinics little different from hospitals on 247. Here, two clauses are sufficiently connected by the semicolon, the second half elaborating well on the premise presented in the first half. She was still breathing shallowly. Semicolon. There was no ocular reflex yet. And here we have two indicators that the tranquilizer is still holding its effect over the specimen, which is what they want, because it's a worry that she may wake up prematurely and become challenging to work with, or worse, injure herself trying to escape. The sauropods are big. Semicolon. The rex can feed off a single kill for several days, says Harding. The statement, and then elaboration presented as connected clauses conjoined by the semicolon. Ellipses. But when he learned what Hammond had done, ellipsis, it was impossible to pass up. Here, the ellipsis represents a pause, symbolically representing the pause Harding took when considering Hammond's proposal. This ellipsis represents him changing his mind, but it also perhaps represents the omission of restating what it is that Hammond has done. That's not mentioned here. So you're saying, ellipsis on page 248, Alvarez Gennaro. he is egging Arnold to continue elaborating on his point about living systems. In fact, there's just that third section offense, ellipsis on 249. Here, this ellipsis is heavy with dramatic irony. If there were a Malcolm Effect possible to plunge the park into utter collapse, it's written in that pause. And we're looking at a big hole in the fence that needs to be repaired to solve this problem. It doesn't get any worse with the next ellipsis. We're turning the camera now to get a look at the fence. Ellipsis. That empty space as we wait holds some tension in it, too. What are we going to see? Well, it's the size of the hole the Tyrannosaur came through. M-dash. Well, they should be careful, M-dash, says Hammond when he's interrupted, cut off by Harding, who says, They are being careful as if he were snapping back at his boss. The M-dash suggests that he's snapping back at Hammond, and the italics further suggest he's emoting strongly, again, like he's snapping back at his boss, which I think is great, but there is no exclamation mark. Who snaps back at someone without exclamation? Apparently Harding does? I don't prefer this reading, but I think we have to take it as Crichton presents it. Harding sort of is pleading, or maybe even whining to Hammond, but they are being careful. Can't you see? I really prefer the snappy comeback, where he's more defiant. Now he just feels wimpy. But I think it's in alignment with what Crichton intended. Quote, He seems pretty clear on the difference between living and non-living... M-Dash on 248. Is Gennaro being cut off by Arnold, who doesn't want to hear any Malcolm defending while he's making his case that the park is back online? This is good for showing character, too. Arnold has not any time for Malcolm's crackpot theories. That's a fact. Quote, unquote. Exclamation. Careful! Careful! On 246, shouts Hammond as people are moving the tranquilized hypsilophodon. This further reinforces that Hammond cares deeply about the well-being of these animals, and perhaps that he insists on having control of a situation. Thus can't help but direct and command people as they're doing their work. He continues, Watch it! Easy! With exclamation. Literary techniques! Similes! They look like a weird, twisted ship's propeller, according to Malcolm. The behavior of any system follows the surface of the propeller, referring to Malcolm's models in phase space. Here, we can imagine the spinning, spirographic shape of a ship's propeller, thicker and more robust than, say, an airplane propeller. And in fact, we don't have to really imagine them at all, because Crichton presents pictures of these shapes at the beginning of each iteration, and they most appear, quote, like weird, twisted ship's propellers in the seventh iteration, if you check that out on page 365. The sixth iteration on page 315, and the fifth iteration on page 269. Dramatic irony. Some more dramatic irony presents itself as Ramon points east through the jungle at, quote, the lights on page 244, which look like, quote, the lights of a car but it is not moving on 245. We know that this is the gas jeep that Nedry stole, and also that it has Muldoon's rocket launcher, which he prepped earlier, and he wants both of these things, but doesn't realize that this is what he's looking at and so disregards it. But we know what it is and realize how close he has come to getting his hands back on the only weapons worth a damn on this island. A few pages later, John Arnold says that they've got the park back under control, and see, there was no Malcolm effect. We're just fine on page 249. In fact, they're just that third section of fence and the final ellipsis shows that there's surely at least something that's not under control that may lead to the Malcolm effect after all. Great in- instruments of dramatic irony here. Analogy, the Malcolm effect. The weird ship's propeller is a model in phase space. Arnold argues that his hand is an analogy for the model. In that, water may run over the surface of our hand in any sort of ways, but it must flow over our hand's surface. That is predictable. The analogy extends to the model of Malcolm's chaos theory. The, quote, behavior of a whole system is like a, quote, drop of water in this analogy. We know that the system may behave in many different ways, but the limits are contained within the model's plotted points. Quote, the drop may spiral down or slip outward toward the edge. It may do many different things, depending but it will always move along the surface of the propeller, says Arnold in 246. So you can imagine that this is like plotting a graph, and given the formula, it will take a certain shape, and all the plot points within the graph fall within this shape. The strange dragon curve model in phase space that resembles a quote weird twisted propeller is just a complicated example of a type of graph, but it still operates like a graph. Some of these plot points, however, are like when you start reaching an asymptote or the plot points begin making dramatic changes. Rather than an asymptote, Arnold says that Malcolm's models feature a ledge or a sharp incline, and the analogous drop of water will quote, speed up greatly on 246. This increase in speed or sharp incline is the Malcolm effect. When the speed increases greatly, the entire system suddenly collapses. Another analogy to living systems incorporating instability is how a body's temperature changes constantly even over a 24-hour cycle, changing with one's mood, exercise, and the outside temperature, busting Gennaro's straw man argument on 248, and reaffirming Arnold's perspective. Then Arnold offers another analogy, that mechanical systems, notably opposite to living systems, according to Arnold, don't incorporate instability, as is the case with resonant yaw. Resonant yaw means that even though a missile was only slightly unstable off the pad, it was hopeless, it was inevitably going to go out of control, and it couldn't be brought back. That's a feature of a mechanical system. A little wobble can get worse until the whole system collapses. So we have two analogies showing perfectly natural instability in a living system and collapsing instability in mechanical systems. And Arnold argues, instabilities are fine because this is a living system at Jurassic Park. They shouldn't collapse because it's a living system. The instabilities should be there. Um, Some dialogue. So I'm conflicted, the back and forth between Harding and Hammond has me of two minds. The first is the reading of their dialogue that I'm most drawn to. Harding cuts off Ham and his boss, snapping back at him that they are being careful. Harding has demonstrated that he doesn't care much for John Arnold, saying that he's a worrywart and won't listen to him when he's asking the gas jeep to be returned recall ellie has to convince harding to turn back even though arnold's commands are obviously urgent so harding has already demonstrated he sort of drums to his own beat here now we have him evidently interrupting his boss with emphasis in his statement as indicated by the m dash and italics but there's no exclamation and i needed that exclamation to fit there just next in harding's backstory we learn that he sees hammond as a peculiar little man, with whom he had, quote, no interest. Again, Harding doesn't look up to, possibly doesn't quite respect Hammond. Again, this snappy comeback is in character, but it's not in the text. Instead, we get a frustrated veterinarian, the best in the world, hired because he was the best in his field, becoming micromanaged on the one thing that he's exclusively the only person in the whole world that's experienced and knowledgeable in this field about, prostrating himself toward Hammond. Without the exclamation mark, the frustration is boiling over. It's being shoved down. And that is further enforced when Hammond asks, how is she, in the very next line, and Harding answers without any sign of frustration, she's fine, she's only dropped a degree and a half, and then goes on to continue defending his decisions and medical opinion to his boss. Hammond has a knack for neutering his characters like Wu. Here he's supplicated the world's greatest avian medical practitioner in Harding, we already know that he's disarmed the great white hunter in Muldoon. For peculiar little man, his ambition, power, wealth, but most importantly, his dream to make Jurassic Park a reality has made him the authority on this island, and everyone is powerless to stop him from making mortal mistakes. Discussion. Timeline. By a statement given by Gennaro, quote, about an hour went by, on page 249, we can deduce that the fence, repairs, and hypsilophidon containment in this chapter occur between 9.30 and 10.30 p.m. Island layout. We're told that each paddock has a utility building, which have low roofs and are made of concrete, containing equipment and feed storage. Funny, the Jurassic World Evolution game doesn't incorporate these in their park designs. But every paddock should have a utility building. Believe me, I know. Once again, we have a character that says, believe me, and then is proven to be entirely incorrect. This time it's John Arnold. He asserts, quote, we have the park. And should Gennaro suggest otherwise, he retorts, don't kid yourself. And he even permits, quote, We may lose a couple of dinos before we get the wrecks out, but, and here it is, believe me, we have the park, on page 251. These are famous last words in Jurassic Park. Crichton just loves to use them. Contrivances and plot. Okay, so, recall the finny.object command restored power to the park, but deleted all traces of Nedry's work with the white rabbit object, and this restored command to the park, except for the telephones, the phone lines are still down. This is useful in building plot, so the heroes can't call for help. It makes them more desperate. In this case, they cannot call the mainland to notify the ship that it's infested with raptors, nor can they radio for help to get a helicopter to save Malcolm's life. And recall, it only takes about 50 minutes for a helicopter to fly to the island. So this is sort of a contrivance of plot that Crichton has inserted to keep the stakes high, and our heroes isolated. It's a little obtuse, but it's it's alright. I guess Nedry did something else, also, in addition to shutting down all the security measures in the park, to the modems, too. Sure, why not? Note, in this chapter, we're told there is a flatbed truck at the park's fingertips on page 246. They could have, if this were truly an emergency, driven the flatbed truck out into the park, just like they are right now, wrangling up dinosaurs. and picked up the tourists during the storm outside the Tyrannosaur paddock. If anything, this flatbed truck would have had more capacity to carry Regis, Malcolm, Grant, Lex, and Tim than a single Jeep would have had as well. Admittedly, with fewer seatbelts for everyone, but they still could have done it, and they had it. They just didn't use it. It wasn't even a consideration. Lastly, a worker can see some headlights through the jungle foliage. We can recall that Nedri almost nearly crashed into the concrete barrier, missed slamming into it by, quote, a foot, as we're told on page 194, and it was very dramatic back in episode 36, Nedri. The front end of the car, where the headlights are, are therefore 12 inches away from the big concrete barrier. That concrete barrier is said to be six feet tall. If we put a set of headlights one foot away from a six-foot-tall wall, they would be only visible from a very specific perspective, and most likely via indirect light. It'd be, in other words, very unlikely you'd see, especially from any distance or any great distance, these lights. Crichton wrote the incredibly close call with the concrete barrier to be dramatic, but it's affecting the viability of the rest of his story here. Chaos theory. So here's Arnold's take on chaos theory. And I think we're supposed to accept this as true. Chaos Theory describes nonlinear systems used to study everything from the stock market to heart rhythms. It has become, quote, very trendy to apply to any complex system where there might be unpredictability. On page 245, Malcolm's models are all phase space shapes on a computer screen which look like a weird and twisted ship's propeller. According to Malcolm, the behavior of any system follows the surface of the propeller. Imagine a drop of water on the back of your hand, the drop is going to run off your hand, maybe towards your wrist, maybe to your thumb, or between your fingers. It's not positively predictable where the water will flow, but it can be predicted that it will run along the surface of your hand. It must. We're told on 245 and 246. Part of the island's descent into chaos is due to human error. From Muldoon's perspective, there are often issues with human error. First, the radios weren't charged naturally, and now it's the ceramic turnbuckles and plastic coated wires, which weren't used on the fence. And as a side note here, like Muldoon is the park designer. These are are his matters to oversee. They are likely his staff members that made these mistakes. So he's either not trained them well, or he's not inspecting their work properly. So Muldoon is sort of passing the buck here. When really the buck stops with him, right? Finally, we get to the point I've been waiting for regarding chaos theory, and ironically, it comes from Arnold, who doesn't abide by chaos theory. Arnold says living systems are not like mechanical systems, they are never in equilibrium. They're inherently unstable. They may seem stable, but they are not. Everything is moving and changing. In a sense, everything is on the edge of collapse, on page 247, we're told. To step out of the conversation for just a second here, this is the subject of entropy. Entropy is an invisible force that brings disorder. Entropy is always tugging away at anything that's created to be in order. It's like building a tower out of blocks. Those blocks are put in order, but literally nothing is going to keep those blocks in the tower shape, whereas it feels like almost everything else around it is just a moment away from causing it to collapse. This is kind of like the invisible force of entropy. Sometimes that collapse is a shake in the floor, a gust of wind, some jerk little brother, but that tower, built in order, is going to come down but the tower is a thing jurassic park is discussing systems in this chapter entropy tugs away at everything that's been put in order like jurassic park here in jurassic park systems are affected by instability but arnold argues that living systems embrace instability adapt and find balance it's in their nature whereas mechanical systems which experience instability crash and burn arnold is speaking to this concept of everything is moving and changing, and says, in a sense, everything is on the edge of collapse. Arnold offers the analogy of instability in a living system and how, quote, little wobbles are essential to a living system, as these wobbles are natural corrections in response to a natural world, which is constantly changing. It's how living systems survive, creating what we observe as a natural balance. And recall, we'll have the topic of equilibrium appear later in this novel in terms of animal populations. The wobbles, quote, mean the system is healthy and responsive, These wobbles and recorrections are are the the living system dealing with entropy, pulling away at it. He counters with the analogy of instability in a mechanical system, which leads to catastrophe or collapse. His main argument is that Jurassic Park is a living system, not a mechanical system, and instability and natural corrections are essential for a responsive, successful living system. Instability must be expected, and recall the lesson from chaos theory is often that resiliency, and preparations to be responsive to challenges is what makes a healthy system. Therefore, Ian Malcolm's observation that this is an instable system is incorrect. But his interpretation that a living system can't survive with instability is false. Instability, according to Arnold, is essential for a living system. Arnold believes Malcolm is treating this like a mechanical system, and so has disregarded Malcolm's paper. Which I guess leads us to our last comment here on, on Arnold and his... Opinions here. The subject is hubris. Please allow me to defer much of this section to the seventh edition of M. H. Abrams' Glossary of Literary Terms to be as enlightening as possible and stay tuned. There are some really fascinating details coming up. So, Arnold's surety in the control mechanisms at Jurassic Park, his extreme confidence in the park's operations in spite of Malcolm's warnings, and especially his total disregard for Malcolm's calculations for the park are his great pride. I feel like hubris gets a little misunderstood or overused, generally speaking, and as well tragedy, for that matter. So let's just get a little bit more specific, literarily speaking. Hubris is specifically an element of tragic tales. Tragedies commonly reach, quote, a disastrous conclusion for the protagonist, as primarily articulated by the Greek dramatic critic Aristotle. The story's tragic endings should arouse pity and fear for the purposes of catharsis of such emotions in the consumer. That is, you should feel pity and fear for the protagonist, and then feel better about your ability to face pity and fear when tragedy strikes your life later on. This is an opportunity to gain some sort of, quote, life experience from a drama to help you better navigate tragedy later in your life. For this purpose, drama can be incredibly important. When we say we love art, we're really saying we love art's ability to deliver us catharsis. So the tragic hero is the one who is best, according to Aristotle, at arousing our pity and terror and is described as being neither thoroughly good nor thoroughly bad, but a mixture of both. It would make for an interesting exercise to consider which characters are good, bad, and neutral, in that sort of Dungeons and Dragons alignment system sort of way for this novel. The, quote, tragic effect will be even greater if the tragic hero is, quote, better than we are, in a sense that he is of a higher than ordinary moral worth. He is exhibited as suffering a change in fortune from happiness to misery because of his mistaken choice of an action to which he is led by an error in judgment called hamartia, by ancient old Aristotle, which means his tragic flaw. Getting close to identifying John Arnold as one who may experience tragedy due to his hubris. So hubris is pride or overwhelming self-confidence which leads a protagonist to disregard a divine warning or to violate an important moral law. So can we consider John Arnold an Aristotelian tragic hero who falls victim to his own hubris? Well, he is really neither good nor bad He suffers some change in fortune from happiness to misery due to mistakes he's made, i.e., disregarding Malcolm's warnings, as well as not realizing that the park was running on auxiliary power. That was his mistake, too. He exhibits hubris, pride, and overwhelming self-confidence, leading him to disregard a divine warning or violate an important moral law. And By this extension, Ian Malcolm is either serving as a divine warning or an important moral law. and That's a really interesting concept. Is Malcolm representing an important moral law, or is he providing a divine warning? Because guys, if Malcolm is the agent of a divine warning, and he dies at the end of this novel, recall the Costa Rican government, quote, did not even permit the burial of Hammond or Malcolm on page 398, there's a whole Christ mythology to consider with the Ian Malcolm character. And then Malcolm returns from the grave for the sequel. My mind is like Jiffy Pop on the stove right now. (laughs) A Christ analogy of Ian Malcolm must be looked into more closely, but at another time, let's focus back on John Arnold. The quote, divine warning could also be the deus ex machina of that severe tropical storm that couldn't be predicted, a natural occurrence which challenges the living system before returning to balance, or as the novel calls it, equilibrium. So yes, these elements of a tragic hero are present, but they're a bit incomplete. I don't believe Arnold ever realizes that he's suffering due to the mistakes he's made. He's not lived long enough to see the error of his ways, and so as readers we don't get that immersive experience of seeing his fatality as a moment of fear and pity. Fear, yes. It's horrifying for sure, but not pity, which is sort of like a he should have known better moment, but more importantly, it's I should have known better moment which we don't get from him. Also, he's not the protagonist or lead character in the novel, meaning these actions of his don't necessarily make this novel a tragic story in a pure Aristotelian sense. And that's fine. Crichton adopts elements of tragedy in the concept of hubris, but he's not telling a tragic story. The readers won't come away with any sense of pity or catharsis from this. But maybe you will. I don't know. Which characters do you pity? I pity Ed Ridges and Henry Wu more than I do John Arnold. Maybe even Dennis Nedry. All right, this has been a long one, guys. Thanks to my special guest, Robbie Dorman. Thank you so much for coming back and uh, sharing more of your experiences with us. Uh, and I want to sign off to everybody who's listened to this as well. Uh, thank you for joining me today. If you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me I'm at Rogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park Cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the second-lapse graphic novelettes, the inventory, and the worst of them all, the King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com/springchickencapers, for me, I'm on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park Cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park, also not that too. Until next time.